Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. I'm Gina. And I'm Nicole. And today we are dishing about a little bit of everything. This is actually our first Q&A episode. Uh, We've received a lot of great questions. We actually put out um, kind of an ask for about the last three weeks. And at first we weren't getting that much traction, but then kind of at the last minute, we got a lot of great questions. So actually so many questions that we need to um, actually divide it up into another episode. But the good news is, is that we're going to try to do these Q&A episodes probably once a month. So if you don't get your question asked today, I guarantee you will hear it answered on on another episode. So no worries. Uh, So before we get into today's questions, uh, let's do a little catch up like we always do. Nicole, what's going on? Um, not a whole lot. I was just telling Mark that I got two Peloton PRs this week. So that was really cool. Nice. Um, that is about it. Yeah. Oh, Shay is getting ready to start T-ball unofficially. Oh, how fun. Yeah. So um, we've been instructed that she needs a mitt and her own helmet. I think they're okay. for purposes of lice prevention, which I, for $16, I think that's a good insurance <laughs> policy. It. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sold. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that is was supposed to start this past weekend, but thanks to rain, was um, postponed about a week. So, okay. yeah. Um, oh, exciting. and we're potty training Piper. So th- yeah, nothing like big going on, but oh. I got a uh, a what is it called? Like an urgent email. It was like respond right away email at work today from Piper's teacher saying, yeah. "Is it okay if we put her in panties because she's requesting um, panties and is telling us when she has to go potty?" So um, interesting. Okay, yeah, definitely some accidents. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other day she goes, "Mom, I peed on your house and there was like a puddle on the floor." I'm like, "Okay." Thankful. Now it was on hardwood, so that was good. Okay, that's the good thing about not having a lot of carpet in your house. We have mostly hardwood too, so peeing. So it's funny that you said that because. Cameron is also kind of starting to potty train. Wow. Um, I don't know how you did it with Shay, but with Paige, it was a, like a three, two day thing where we literally threw away all of her diapers. Or at least we told her we did. We didn't throw them away because we knew we'd have another baby. So um, we, we quote unquote threw them away and never turned back. We, we didn't do the wavering back and forth or putting on the diaper, putting on the underwear. We just literally gave her no choice. And that was the best thing for us. Mm -hmm. I'd read up on it. Um, A couple of my friends had done this with their kids and it worked like a charm. I I do think the key is um, that they're ready and that they're the right age, you know, for them. Uh, So if she, if it sounds like, is that the kind of, you know, process that you guys typically do or how, how are you guys doing your potty training? Uh, (laughs) I, I wish I, I have a really bad memory. It wasn't traumatic. So I think it okay. went okay. Um, yeah. it She was potty trained before the age of three. Um, not much before, but yeah, I, I really have little recollection of how that went. I think she was ready and motivated by chocolate chips. So it, yeah. it happened. Skittles. We use Skittles. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
Nice. I'm like well, not so- pushing it with Piper because our, our nanny's like, Nicole, she is she's ready. And I'm just like, but she's my baby. Like I'm kind of holding on to the whole diaper thing. It's pathetic. I totally understand that. I was just saying that to Nick yesterday. He was like, we need to potty train Cameron because he's basically ripping off his diaper and mm-hmm. he doesn't want to wear one anymore. And I'm just like, that's the saddest thing because we know it's our last child. And I mean, it's it's sad, but it's also, you know, I'm obviously very excited. Who likes to buy diapers and, you know, deal with diapers? No one. But He's yeah, not even I, two and a half, is he? No, he just turned two in February. That's impressive, Cameron. Wow. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. Everyone always says that boys are more difficult to potty train. So that's one thing. We didn't potty train Paige until she was like about six or I'm sorry, two years and eight months. We actually waited because we had Cameron in the middle there and we didn't want to. We kind of waited mm-hmm. about three months after having Cameron because of the regression possibilities. Um, but I think waiting for her was really, really good. So I, I'm a little bit reluctant to start on him. So I don't know. I'll, maybe I'll see how you go, how, how what happens with you and Piper. So I get like, you know, reminded <laughs> of the terrible uh, and you know episodes of potty training and then I won't do it until he's actually maybe more ready. But yeah. I think Nick is kind of pushing me to do it. I mean, he would help me, obviously. It's not going to yeah, be just team me, effort for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, so nothing so, exciting, exciting. But what's new with you? Well, I have a question real quick. How, what is a PR? So is it time? Is it calories burned? Oh, good question. So in the world of Peloton, it is mm-hmm. your um, personal record with in terms of output, which is a combination of your cadence and your resistance. Oh, okay. Okay. So on the bikes that we use it, um, where I work out, it's that's called the power. Mm-hmm. So it's probably the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you had like the highest average of power than you've had ever before. Is that what you're saying? Not average, but total. Total power. So it's okay. kilojoules. Is it? Okay. E- I don't know. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I don't it's know. kilojoules. But, it, but they give you an average. Wouldn't it be an, an average of the enti- for the entire? So maybe it is different than what I'm used to. So they do bike. give you an average. They give you all sorts of stats, which okay. I, I'm kind of geeked about all that because you can see your heart rate throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And That's so cool. Um, I was uh, one of my favorite instructors. Her name is Allie Love. And I know we're keeping today short, so this isn't helping. But um, no, it's she, <laughs> the other morning I was like, I'm not getting up for a 6 a.m. ride. And 7 o'clock is just too late to get started. So I had set my alarm for 6.20 and I was just going to do a like a already preloaded ride, like not a live ride. Mm-hmm. And then I naturally woke up at 5.50 and I was like, crap, now I have to do the 45 minute Tabata ride. Like I'm Ooh, not even awake. Tabata. Oh, it kicked my butt. I got a PR though. That's awesome. Yes. I think once your body gets used to working out, working out early in the morning, I mean, it just, it's, it's not easy, but you just, just do it and your your body gets used to it and it, it becomes easier at least, I think. I'm a total poser though. I'm not committed to the morning. Like I, I can do it a yeah. day or two that, but it that exhausts me. It yeah. it totally exhausts me. I'm I'm not willing. I, my schedule does not demand that I adopt all morning workouts. So yeah. I do a kind of combination of, I, you do too. Me too. I think. Me too. Yeah. Definitely. I, I work out in the morning probably about three days a week, mm-hmm. uh, but I will say, I feel like I have more energy on those days. Like I me, walk into me too, but I get so work. hungry in the afternoon. So hungry. I could yes, I would agree with that for sure. But I I don't know. I would I would prefer the more energy and more hungry over less energy and less hungry. Honestly, yes. So agreed. Anyway, what's going on in my life? So I wanted to really quickly something that we didn't touch on in the last episode about detox was the importance of exercise. Speaking of exercise, I really feel like for me, exercise is a natural detox. We were talking about how our sweat is a good way to kind of get rid of 
quote unquote, toxins in our body. And what better way to sweat than to exercise? Um, and I, I also feel like, well, I don't know. I, don't, I just lost my train of thought. But exercise, the best way to detox. I mean, you, it just doesn't get any better than that. When it comes to, when I was talking about the cleanses, how a lot of doctors will recommend a cleanse to kind of clear out your system if you're constipated, another great way to get rid of constipation or to at least ameliorate it to a, a little bit would be exercise. Whenever I have a client who has chronic constipation, the first question I always ask them is, do you exercise? And I'm not talking about getting up at 520 and doing a Peloton workout, anything like a, a nice 20 minute walk, just moving. Uh, you know, there are many, many people in this world who really have sedentary lifestyles, getting up and moving um, to kind of get that system flowing. So a good way to detox and kind of naturally cleanse or get rid of constipation. So I think we kind of didn't, we didn't hit on that, mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to make sure we said that. Uh, something that's going on in my life, which is not something that I'm too overly concerned about, but a little bit is I found a lump in my breast. I do have breast cancer in my family. Uh, nothing where it's a, it's, it's not any of my aunts or my mother. It's actually my grandma who had breast cancer. They always ask if it's a, um, an aunt or a mom. Um, so I think having it as your grandma, obviously it's still scary, but they usually don't, they, they I think that they, they consider that not a direct What's the word that they use? Like a direct tie or a mm -hmm. uh, first, what am I? What am I? First of not, kin type of. Something like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Directly related. Whatever. I don't know. But anyway, and she was also 60 plus when she, when she got breast cancer. That's another big question they ask is how old were they when they got breast cancer? Mm -hmm. So if they're under the age of 40, it's like, you know, you've got really, really high, not high chances, but your chances of getting breast cancer are definitely increased when they when they got breast cancer themselves under the age of 40 or before they turned 40. Um, but anyway, I found a lump in my breast and I went to get it checked today by my OB. And she actually wrote me a prescription to go get a mammogram at age 36, which is absolutely crazy. And then of course she wrote on the prescription one to two centimeter mass on the left breast. And I'm like, why are you calling it a mass? <laughs> I mean, couldn't you have used any other word? than mass. So I had to like call to schedule this mammogram. They asked why I had to explain that I had a one to two centimeter mass on my last breath. It just sounds so terrible. Yeah. Um, so I tried to get, yeah, I tried to get it in as early as possible. So of course I can't get it until Monday. I tried to get either tomorrow or Friday. They can't get me until Monday. So I have to think about this for the next four days over Easter. But I am very hopeful that it is just maybe some type of, um, I think I think my sister-in-law called it an adeno adenoidoma or at something oma uh, or a cyst of some sort that they could just kind of uh, put a needle in and kind of get the liquid out. So she said that it was very mobile and didn't feel like it was attached to anything, which was good. So I really am hopeful that it's nothing and chances are it is nothing, but it's still obviously on oh, my mind. Of course. Yeah. Well, that's thinking what I get to of you. Oh. Thank you. Yeah. Please keep fine. us posted. Now everybody's going to be wondering how you're doing. So. Yes. And we'll do a whole episode. I think I think that warrants a good episode on breast health and what you can do, um, you know, physically and with your with your diet to reduce your chances of getting of getting breast cancer or any type of cancer, really. And our listeners like to talk about boobs or hear about boobs because that was our most popular episode so far. Totally. The breastfeeding episode, mm -hmm. number one. Number we got one. more. We got more where that came from, for sure. <laughs> I could talk about that for days. And I was so mad. So I was looking up. So 
So I, I always knew that breastfeeding reduced your risk of getting breast cancer, but uh-huh. I was looking at the actual, like what that actually meant. And in, um, from what I read on the internet, but I, reliable sources was you have to have breastfed for at least a year and a half to two years. Oh. And yeah. Wow. And it even said in the notes, like, this is very rare. Most people don't breastfeed that long. I only breastfed Paige 11 months and Cameron 14 months. I say I only. I mean, I'm pretty proud of myself for that. But I mean, I guess that doesn't really reduce my chances of getting breast cancer, or at least not significantly. Um, they also said in what I read that if you have full-term babies after the age of 30, your chances of getting breast cancer increase which is interesting to me because more and more women are having babies at an older age, um, you know, after age 30. So I'm wondering if that's going to increase the number of women who get breast cancer. I'm just curious about that. So anyway, hmm. so we'll definitely do an episode on that for sure. And I will keep everyone updated. Absolutely. So let's dive into the Q and a, we've, like I said, we've got a lot of great questions. Uh, some of them we are not going to get to today, but we will definitely do in future episodes. The first one is what are some higher protein sources of good and good replacements for common food allergens, such as milk, nuts, and eggs. And I'm going to go ahead and hit on that one. We are going to actually do a milk alternative episode in June. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and I do get this question a lot because I work with uh, students who have food allergies. So Milk, higher protein sources of milk would be, and not all milk alternatives are a good protein source. So the ones that are be- best, I would say, really the best one is going to be soy milk. So if you've got a dairy allergy or a milk allergy, soy milk is really going to be your best replacement when it comes to protein. Uh, also, ca- or I'm sorry, yeah, cashew milk and hemp milk, I think are some close alternatives. Or uh, they kind of, they're relatively close when it comes to soy, but soy definitely is, is number one when it comes to protein. Almond milk has just about, you might as well have zero, it has about one gram of protein, so not that great. Also, there's some yogurts out there that I think are really great when it comes to um, replacing milk and, and regular yogurt in your diet. There's some that are made with almonds, cashews, coconut, uh, and generally they have about five grams of protein in them. There are so many brands, I'm just making a general statement at this point. Um, and then as far as cheeses, I have yet to find a good cheese, non-dairy cheese replacement that's a good source of protein. Uh, so really it has to do, I would say, stick to the milk alternatives and the yogurt. Also tofu is a great, especially silken tofu, if you add that to your smoothies, a great replacement for something like yogurt or milk in your, in your smoothies as far as calcium is concerned. Uh, let's see. So what about nuts? So, I mean, if you have a nut allergy, you can definitely find other sources of protein. If you don't don't ever eat nuts in your life, you're still going to be able to get plenty of protein. But my favorite nut replacement as far as nut butter is going to be sun butter. Have you ever had that, Nicole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my kids eat it every day. Do they? Because are you not allowed to have nuts in your preschool? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So I've, I try so hard to get my kids to eat it because I know one day they won't be able to have peanut butter in their school, but they don't love it. Um, but they don't hate it. If I add it to things like baked goods or granola bars, they do. They don't mind it. It's like they don't even really know the difference. Um, but I really like sun butter. I think it tastes really good. I've actually given it to someone who has a nut allergy. And he actually thought it was peanut butter and almost gave himself a reaction because it was like that psychosomatic 
uh, reaction where he thought it was peanut butter. I felt terrible. This was about six years ago. Anyway, it's I think it's pretty tasty. There's also a good sunflower um, seed butter out there called 88 Acres. It's actually out of Boston. I just discovered it. And they have a lot of great granolas that are seed-based and bars that are seed-based. Really good sources of protein and also very tasty. Uh, as far as eggs are concerned, definitely a major protein source for my kids. So if you have kids or if you yourself have an egg allergy, as far as baked goods, there are a lot of easy ways to replace eggs and baked goods. If you type in egg replacements and baked goods on Google, you'll find a plethora of options. Chia seeds, flax seeds, yogurt, um, applesauce. So depending on what you're making, it's going to depend on that's going to decide what ratio of those to use and how much and how much water to add if you need to add water. So make sure you just Google it and then you indicate what you're making. So if it's a, you know, a quick bread versus a cookie versus a, a muffin, it's going to change maybe what you're going to do to replace that egg. So just Google. It's very helpful, but those are some options. Mm-hmm. As far as protein is, is concerned, uh, I'm a real big fan of tofu, like scrambled tofu instead of scrambled eggs. If you add some turmeric, it'll pretty much dye the entire pan yellow and almost looks like scrambled eggs. There's also some products out there. Uh, I know that the Just Mayo Company has just come out with something called Just, I think it's called Just Eggs maybe, but it's by the Just Company. I don't even know if they've launched it in the grocery stores yet, um, but I think if, I think it's on their website. It might be available just commercially at this point, um, but I've actually tried it because I work in food service and it's delicious. They even have a little egg patty. So I am willing to bet they're going to come out with some um, a lot more products in the near future. And you'll be seeing that in the grocery stores soon. But other than that, as far as eggs, I mean, obviously, when you have an egg allergy, you I, w- I would say still the, the best protein source for your kids are going to be some type of a lean meat like chicken or turkey or a lean ground beef. But of course, there's also, you know, yogurts, Greek yogurt, nuts, seeds, um, yeah, anything else that you can think of as far as egg? I know that there's some people out there who also oftentimes if you have an egg allergy, it coincides with a nut allergy. That's very common, especially in young kids. So um, really aiming mm-hmm. for the lean protein sources as far as animal protein or, you know, the the high protein dairy sources or soy milk. Um, Fairlife has a good amount of protein, which is a good uh, milk brand out there too mm-hmm. that I give to my kids. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the Fair Life is a great suggestion. So it is It is quite a bit higher in protein. Yes, it is. And it's tasty and not too expensive. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan. And low in lactose too, if your kids... Mm-hmm. Well, I don't really mind the lactose. It's really just the sugar. So it has less sugar. So I like that. Yeah. Cool. Um, so our second question comes from Kate, um, who's a mom of, I think, two kids. And it says, she says, they take forever to eat. Mm. Uh, she said, we've currently been sitting at the table for an hour and they're only about halfway through their plates. They don't want to get up and they they don't want to get up and they say they're not done eating, but they get super distracted with talking and singing with each other. Is there any way to speed them up without creating mm-hmm. bad habits? Mm-hmm. I generally favor family mealtime, but sitting at the table for so long every night is getting soul sucking. And I know Kate, she's a cute question. And so I, I, I yes, it, this is a tough one. And I think number one, Kate is remind yourself that this is, actually a really good problem. Um, Unfortunately, she is a stay-at-home mom, so she's got a little bit more time. Um, But I think the one thing I thought of that I've used uh, really to help 
my kids taste different things is to create a game of sorts. So something like, hey, let's all try this together and we can cheers our bites. So in our house, we like to clink glasses or we'll put a piece of broccoli on our fork and we'll kind of all cheers to our broccoli and kind of you know, raise our bite together, or even clink our little forks together if we're close enough, and then take the bite together. So almost creating like a, a mirrored eating activity uh, mm-hmm. to kind of move it along and keep it on task. I think the other thing is, you know, especially if you're trying to catch up, you know, Kate's husband gets home and they, I'm, I'm sure they're trying to hear about each other's day, but it might actually be a good time to just focus on the task at hand and lessen the kind of the talking, which kind of stinks, but um, I know it is an option. You can also try like setting up the kids in a different arrangement at the table. So maybe if they're looking at each other, it that could be distracting. Or if you could kind of alternate kid, adult, kid, adult, or even trying to put them on the same side of the table so that they are sitting next to each other, but not able to look at each other. So I don't know. Okay. Those are just some ideas. Do you have any for her? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I wrote down that I have the opposite problem. We, I feel like we sit down to dinner and my kids just rush through their meal and then ask to be excused. And I know that it is my responsibility as their parent to kind of have control over whether or not they can get up, but they just get up and run around. And I, I feel like I just got home from a long day. I don't want to argue. I'm glad they ate. I don't even care. At at this point, they want to go outside and play. They don't want to sit. So I had the opposite problem. I wish they would want to sit down mm-hmm. and chat and talk and play and have fun and, you know, have a good time at the dinner table. I So I had the opposite issue. <laughs> I guess my thing, if, if I was in her shoes, it sounds like she doesn't mind that they're all sitting there and still eating and enjoying themselves, but she wants to get stuff done. So I guess for me, I would just excuse myself from the table. If I've already been there and we've had our conversation and our little, you know, bonding family time. I guess I wouldn't feel bad saying, if you don't mind, mommy's going to be excused now. Yeah, especially if it's been an hour. That's a really good point. I think I think maybe she has to give herself that permission to say, "Um, okay, I've been with you guys the past 10 hours. We've had an hour long dinner, you know, um, the laundry is calling my name, (laughs) you know, or the dishes or or even just go sit and relax and just chill out while you're while your husband or your partner, whoever it is, has the kids for a while at the dinner table. Yeah, that's a really good sound so bad. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. Um, No, those are great suggestions. All right. Question three. My husband prefers heavy meals, but I do not. I'll eat chicken. But what other proteins do you recommend? And what heavy meat meals? You said heavy meals. Just an FYI. Oh, heavy meat. Heavy meat meals. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you. Forgot that important word. Sometimes (laughs) reading is really difficult. Um, So at eight o'clock it is. I agree. Um. What popped into my mind immediately was seafood. Uh, One, because most people don't, you know, who choose to eat meat um, or who are pescatarian don't often eat that much seafood. And I think, two, uh, outside of the health benefits, it's also something that thaws quickly and also cooks quickly. So I think it's packed with protein. So it's got lots of staying power. It's almost, I mean, with the exception of salmon, which is full of omega-3s, it, they're pretty low in fat. Um, and so I think that, and they're really versatile. So you could add them to something, serve them alongside something. Uh, but I think of seafood, everything from fish to shrimp, uh, scallops, anything along those lines. So I think yeah. trying new things in that way. 
And also to kind of move away from the traditional meat, potato, vegetable, you know, when you have a plate that looks like that, almost like the my plate, you know, just very separate food items, it's easy to see like, where's the meat or if it's missing. Um, right. But if you kind of move to an all in one or kind of one pot meal that offers kind of uniform flavor profile that can include meat, but not necessarily feature meat. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think that might be a nice way to kind of ease back on the amount of meat consumption that's going on while being able to bulk up on the vegetables um, or or maybe it's other proteins too. So, and then you can also swap in the whole grain. So something like a, a rice or noodle that's whole grain with lots of vegetables and then some type of a protein included. So. Yeah, I like that. I, and I actually, my husband is also a big meat and potato. I mean, if we, if I made meat and potato in the crock pot or pressure cooker every night, I'm sure he would be thrilled. And on days that I do make those heavy meat meals, I always have some type of a non-starchy vegetable to go with it. So what I typically do is I'll make that heavy meat meal and I'll have a little bit of it, like maybe three ounces of the meat and a little bit of potato or whatever the starch is. And then I'll make the majority of my plate that non-starchy vegetable. So I still have a little bit of the, of the you know, the home style meal. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not eating what I made, um, but I, st- I make the majority of my plate the non-starchy vegetable. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets to enjoy his, you know, quote unquote, meat and potatoes. And everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. So question number... Oh, question number four, even though I have it as question number five. What population of people would intermittent fasting be good for? I believe that this was a question from one of my students. Uh, I feel like this is a big thing in especially on college campuses, although I feel like it's kind of big everywhere. I've seen it and heard about it everywhere. It's a big thing. Yeah. Okay. So you've heard you've heard people doing this as well. Yes, and even friends of mine who are mm. avid avid intermittent fasters. Okay. So here's my my take on that. I think rather than focusing on who it would be good for, I think it's better to talk about who it wouldn't be good for and that would be diabetics and those with a history of an eating disorder. Like myself, which I'll talk about in a couple episodes. So I think also it's a really good idea to make sure that you have a good understanding of what intermittent fasting is all about. I think uh, the, I, I forget what the, the, maybe there was a book that came out a, a few years ago that kind of got uh, increased its popularity. Uh, but the book, I believe the idea was that you were eating 500 calories a day for two days out of the week and then kind of at, you ate whatever you want the other days of the week. That's what I think the original intermittent fasting was. And then it's kind of been edited a little bit by others. Um, so some people might eat nothing for a couple of days and then eat whatever they want or ad lib the rest of the week. Uh, I know that there are other ways of intermittent fasting where you just fast for 15 to 20 hours and then you eat whatever you want the other, the other you know, four to, or I guess nine to four to nine hours of the day. Uh, I would really suggest listening to the podcast called This This Unmillennial Life. And it's actually by Reagan Jones, who is a dietitian. I will post the episode in the show notes. I listened to it. It was very fascinating. I learned a lot about intermittent fasting. And um, so first of all, I would recommend that. My other thought is... And she's awesome. Yeah, she she really is. I 
I have mixed feelings about her podcast, which we can maybe talk about in person. I, I, I do really love her as a person. I don't know her, but I've, I've seen, I've been following her for years and I just really respect her. I feel like her podcast is turning into an infomercial a little bit, but she's got some really good podcasts out there. So if you're looking for a good podcast to listen to, it's called This Unmillennial Life. And there are some really fascinating episodes. With the one that's, that's about intermittent fasting is one of them. Um, so my other thing about that is that there actually is some good research to support that it can have some positive health effects. That being said, a lot of the research is not very long-term, so, and there's really not that much of it. So of the research that has been done, there's been, they've shown some, uh, good results with regards to blood sugar and blood lipids. Uh, but that does not mean it's a good idea for everyone. It's also one of those things that's just not very sustainable and, in my opinion, anything that doesn't help you make behavioral changes that will last a lifetime is really kind of useless. You might lose some weight if you do it for a month, but if you can't do it beyond that, you're most likely going to put it back on. So in my opinion, what's the point? You probably haven't really learned much. So that's just my opinion on the, uh, the intermittent fasting. But I do think that the episode is a really good one to listen to. I think that there are doable ways, um, realistic ways to do the intermittent fasting plan especially one that they talk about, which is uh, fasting for 15 hours, where you would fast from maybe seven to uh, 10 the next day, which is pretty doable. I mean, I've done that before. Mm -hmm. uh, and you would still maybe reap some of the benefits of the, you know, uh, blood sugar control um, and, and lipids. But in reality, if you don't have diabetes, you shouldn't be worried about your, your blood sugar. And if you do have diabetes, you shouldn't be doing this anyway. So I've heard the most common, it, just from a few, this is just anecdotally from people in my life, I guess. The most popular ones I've heard of are um, you can start eating for the day at noon. At, and you typically have a calorie target for this for this time. Yes. Um, but noon to eight is usually kind of the eat time. And then you're fasting from 8 p.m. until noon the following day. And I think my one mm -hmm. um, caution with this would be kind of, kind of just like you said, Gina, is is it maintainable? Is it is it realistic? Is it all those things? Because I think of like a morning workout. If I couldn't eat anything or have any energy, i.e. calories coming into my body until noon, mm -hmm. I, I'd feel horrible until I got food in me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I also, I can't tell you how many times, like I will try not to eat before I go to bed. You know, I, I try not to eat after dinner. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to make that a rule for myself and then not be an intuitive eater. Intuitive eating is the best way to go. If your body is asking for food, if you're physically hungry, but you're saying to yourself, oh, I can't eat until tomorrow at 12. I mean, that's just not healthy. <laughs> so I'm just a big proponent of intuitive eating. And that just doesn't, that's, that doesn't fit that category at all. So my intuition is telling me to eat all the Easter candy, Gina. <laughs> It oh has to go. It has to go. <laughs> oh my gosh. My my daughter just, she every night she, the school keeps giving them freaking jelly beans for a snack, which is a whole nother story. Oh girl, yesterday uh, she got two pieces of pizza for snack. I about went <laughs> off, went off. You want to see a mad mom? Holy <laughs> crap. You bring a um, dietitian into the room and you tell her, I just gave your kid two slices of pizza for snack. I about went bonkers Nicole, on her. Yesterday, I asked Paige what she had for snack, and she said, goldfish crackers, jelly beans, and mini marshmallows. I would take <laughs> pizza in a heartbeat after that. <laughs> oh, gosh. We need, we need to do something about that. That's ridiculous. 
Anyway, so yes, I'm I'm with you on the eating of the of the candy. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm not gonna beat myself up over it. I am enjoying every bite of it. All right. So intermittent fasting. So yeah. Get get educated about it. I mean get educated. Make the right decision for you. Yeah. Yep. And and I think one more thing I will I will point out about that. I think the question is who would it be good for? There are people, and I'm sure you know these people, who really don't love food that much. And who just aren't foodies. They'll eat. They Maybe they forget to eat, which I've never understood. You know, they might go the whole day without eating and then eat a big meal at night. I mean, they're already intermittent fasting. But is that, are those the people that are the healthiest? You've met people like that in your clinic, I'm sure. And I feel like that kind of lifestyle isn't usually the best. The people mm-hmm. that I see who go all day without eating and then eat a giant meal at the end of the day, and I know that's not what we're saying here. I think that's what some intermittent fasters do. Um, it just, how, how are you supposed to realistically get all the nutrients that you need when you're only giving yourself such a small window to eat? So that's just another thought. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but eating, let's say your, your calorie intake for the day should be 1,800 to 900 calorie meals. Oh, is oh, That's a I'm, lot of food. It just, I, I feel weighed down. I want to take a nap after that, you know? I just, oh. It's interesting. Do it. huh. it All right. So question five, what are the best vegetarian sources of iron and calcium? And great question. So iron, I think most importantly, needs iron from non-heme sources, i.e. vegetarian sources, needs to be consumed with vitamin C for absorption. So things um, that do have a good amount of iron would be beans, lentils, tofu, baked potatoes, cashews, dark leafy greens, fortified breakfast cereals, whole grains, and enriched breads. So all um, pretty good iron sources. So yeah, it, not plentiful. Um, and that's all the more important, you know, that vitamin C. So as far as calcium, mm-hmm. uh, vegetarian sources. So definitely dairy is number one um, as far as content. So that's milk, yogurt, cheese, calcium fortified beverages. So this um is everything from your non-dairy milks, such as soy or almond, and even things like orange juice. So that's really a, you know, we, we touched on this in our in our juicing talk the last episode, uh, but that's a very common practice now is to fortify various juices with calcium. So look for that. I mean, especially if you're a vegetarian, that is probably of benefit to you. Dark- I think that's key though, to mention that it's fortified orange juice, because I've, I've actually talked to people who think the orange juice itself has calcium in it, but it does not come naturally with calcium. It needs to be fortified. So, yeah. Like you said. And so, so one clarification, since I've mentioned both fortification and enrichment in just answering this question, but kind of the difference between the two. So as Gina mm-hmm. just said, fortification means that a vitamin or mineral, some type of a nutrient is added to a food product that does not naturally contain that food element. So as, as Gina just said, orange juice does not naturally have calcium in it. It's added to it. So it's a fortification. Whereas enrichment, like enriched breads, um, wheat does have some iron in it. And so what an enrichment process is, is during processing, that nutrient is lessened or diminished uh, or it could be stripped altogether. Um, and then it is added back uh, as, into the final product before it's, you know, it's sold. So it's it's removed at some point in either the processing or preparation, but added back in for sale. So right. um, just a clarification there. So um, other high calcium vegetarian sources uh, would be dark leafy greens. So those kind of would check both boxes. 
uh, dried peas, beans, tofu, almonds, sesame seeds. So that would also include things like uh, sun butter, molasses, and fortified cereals. So um, I think a a note here, similar to the vitamin C, ensure that you have adequate vitamin D to help your body use calcium. So using having an inadequate amount of one um, doesn't help support the other. So you you need a good amount of both. And so definitely consider a supplement if you're anywhere in the north of the US. So if you're like Gina and I, and you may not see the sun for a solid couple of months at a time, uh, probably a good idea to, to grab a supplement. Uh, I was going to say one other thing and I forgot. Oh, I was just going to mention unrelated, but unrelated. uh, The 2019 Dirty Dozen was released and Kale is now on the Dirty Dozen. Okay. I thought it was always on the Dirty Dozen. I don't think so. But I just listened to another podcast today. I'm taking their word for it, especially since one of them is an RD. Um, But was it the, um, the one that we always listen to? What is it called? Yeah, um, food and session. With the chef. Yeah, food and session. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I really like them. And one's a dietitian, one has bulldogs. They're like my people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was sad to hear that. But they think that their their was, thought was, was it, I mean, it makes sense that it would be because just be, due to the nature of how it's grown and that leafy, I mean, bugs love it, right? Um, sure. But they said because they've it's become such a popular vegetable that they've had to increase production quickly. And so they don't have as much, they can't take as much risk with the crop. And so they've probably had to use more pesticide uh, yeah. to keep up with demand. So that made that sense. sense. Um, yeah. I think that so, was their theory. I don't know that that's true, but I'm buying into that. So yeah. Uh, from our smoothie episode, something I forgot to mention is that kale and smoothies is actually absolutely disgusting. But if you chop it up and put it in the freezer first for, you know, anywhere from, you know, eight to 24 hours and then put it in the smoothie, I don't know how or why, but it actually tastes good. Um, someone told me to do this several years ago and I didn't believe them. So I, of course, tried it. Delicious. Huh. I don't know what happens, but it is, it's worth Do you trying. remember when kale chips were like the thing? Oh, yes. You couldn't I open do. a webpage and did you ever, <laughs> I mean, did you love them? Okay. So I did love the taste, but it always infuriated me that I would have a whole giant thing of kale and my tray would be full of all these delicious raw kale chips that then, you know, just shrivel down to nothing. Shrivel into a piece of tissue paper. Basically. Yes. Yeah. So that made me mad. So I, I, I think I probably made them twice. Yeah, they taste fine, but I didn't understand all the rage. And then the amount of salt that people put on them, I was like, it's basically a salt lick. I mean, yeah, exactly. You might as well just eat a regular chip. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'd prefer it. Too funny. Um, all right. Funny. You want to go into the our last, last question? question? Yes. So cholesterol. When should medication be considered and are there times, especially in females, where cholesterol levels may be higher? So I think I kind of alluded to this uh, in my in one of our episodes where I talked about my cholesterol numbers. So every year, like most, I think, wellness plans for employers, we do like a biometric screening. And so I just had mine done recently. I went on the same day as my husband. And just to kind of recap. He is a, like I said before, like a meat and potato eater, doesn't work out, has a pretty, I wouldn't say sedentary lifestyle, but his job is pretty sedentary. His numbers were by far better than mine. Um, My total cholesterol is 214, which the recommendation is 200. 
My HDL is 59, which has come down from 90, mind you. Um, the ideal is to be above 60. So I think for, for, male, for males, it's above 40. For women, it's supposed to be above 60. Or that's ideal. And then non-HDL, so... Wait, did yes. I... Your HDL was 90? It was at one point, yes. Holy crap. That's yeah. impressive. I know. I was so proud of that. And now it's come down to 59. Um, my non-HDL, so that would consist of your LDL or lousy cholesterol. And I believe also your VLDL or your very low density lipoprotein. And you want to get something under 130. Um, the number for your LDL should be that you want to aim for under 100. And I believe that's come down over the previous years. I think when I was in school, they actually said to aim for more like 120. But now they're saying that it's ideal for it to be under 100. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically what they say is if you're trying to figure out your not, your LDL number. So I only got my non-HDL, which includes also the VLDL. So if you want to figure out what your LDL is based on your non-HDL, you're supposed to just subtract 30, um, I think. So that being said, my non-HDL was 155. You want to aim for under 130. Uh, if, if my non-HDL was 155, I guess in theory, that means if I subtract 30 from that, my LDL is 125 when you want to aim for under 100. So those are the different recommendations. And you can find all of this on the American Heart Association website, WebMD, um, so many other websites, but those are the two that I like to use. So Last year when I did this, I had, I was still, I was just weaning off of nursing. So there are two times when your cholesterol levels might be a little bit elevated. One is during pregnancy and two is during when you're nursing. And that's because hormones, they just, I mean, cholesterol is a hormone. So it, it just, your hormones kind of throw you all off. So if you have a little bit of higher numbers when you're pregnant or when you're breastfeeding or nursing, lactating, it, it's, it's, you shouldn't be too concerned, but you definitely want to go back in and check maybe within six months of quitting or having your baby or not nursing anymore to see what they are if they were high at that time. So my levels were pretty high last year when I was still, I was just weaning off of nursing and I did get them checked again about six months later and they were okay. Um, and now it's, it's been six months since that. So it's been a total, a whole year since I stopped breastfeeding and my numbers have still not come down. So here I thought they were going to come down when I was completely dried up, but they have not. I do have heart disease in my family. Once again, man, I've got cancer in my family, heart disease in my family. And I just saw a study. I'm just a mess. I just saw a study that said that women who had gestational diabetes during their pregnancy are at a significantly, I forget what the percent was, but greater risk of having some type of a, um, a cardiac event in their life. And who had gestational diabetes? Moi. So Gina. it does make me it does make me a little bit concerned when I see these numbers. I'm not gonna, you know, the question was when should medication be considered? I'll talk about my my personal thoughts on this for me. Um, my doctor hasn't said anything with regards to putting me on medication, but my dad was on medication when he was in high school. Uh, so was my aunt, and I feel like I'm very much built like her. So I, and my aunt would be my dad's sister. So with these numbers, I'm going to give it one more year and make some dietary changes and see what happens. If they're still creeping up, 
I'm going to consider going on some type of a statin, which I would hate to do, but I just, I think it would be smart for me, especially as I creep towards 40. You're so funny. Can I add, can I add a little something? So I, I have a little bit of exposure to this, um, just in working closely with doctors and some of them talk to themselves. Um, and so I learn when they do as they're doing their charting. And so a lot of them use what's called a heart risk calculator. So that's really looking at what is a person's 10 year, um, risk of developing heart disease or stroke. And so if you just Google heart risk calculator, um, Mm -hmm. something will pop up. So it, it takes into account a lot of things. So certainly pregnancy is, is one of those, but Overall, there's a ton of things that play that factor into kind of the decision making as to when meds would be considered. So age, definitely gender, race, um, cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes and smoking, um, as well as alcohol consumption. So I think those all have to be taken into account. And then at the bottom of this test, and this is from, you know, a American Heart Association uh, verified. It just it I find this very interesting. I'm just going to read it. The calculator assumes that you have not had a prior heart attack or stroke. If you have, generally it is recommended that you discuss with your doctor about starting aspirin and, and a statin. Furthermore, if you have LDL greater than 190, it is also generally recommended that you discuss with your doctor about starting aspirin and a statin. Unfortunately, there is insufficient data to reliably predict risk for those less than 40 years of age or greater than 79 years of age and those with a total cholesterol greater than 320. Hmm. Interesting. So 190 is pretty darn high to... That is high. I for, don't know. For I, LDL, not total. Um, right. So I think I think you're good. I feel like that's really high. I, would, I wouldn't even... If my LDL go, goes above 150, there's no way I'm going to wait till it gets to 190 to go on a statin. I think that's a little bit... Um, liberal in my opinion. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I like to have control. I, I feel good knowing so much about cholesterol numbers because I feel like if, if that was the, um, criteria that my doctor used, I guess I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't know any better if I didn't, if I didn't have this background, but that scares me a little bit. Agreed. Agreed. I don't know. I just think that's kind of strange. Um, especially because I did have gestational diabetes. So I, I might not have currently, di- currently have diabetes. But my risk for getting diabetes is automatically increased because I had that. Mm-hmm. I also have it in my family. I mean, my, my, like I said, my dad had to go on satin when he was in high school. I mean, I, I don't know. With that all in mind, plus, um, I was going to say one more thing. So the, the tri, or total cholesterol to HDL ratio is also something to look at. So you want, to, you want it to be under 3.5. So you just divide your total cholesterol by your HDL and you try to get under 3.5. Mine was 3.6, which is not terrible. Um, so I'm... I'm a little bit happier about that. But something else that, that, to consider, and I don't know if you guys do this in your clinic, but uh, is the buoyancy of your LDL particles. So the small, dense LDL particles are going to be more dangerous than the large, buoyant LDL particles. And they do have tests for that. And I've actually asked my doctor if I can do that. So I think I'm going to be doing that this year during my physical. She's going to you know, write a prescription for me to go to a lab and get that done. I don't know what it entails, but I'm kind of excited. So if I find out that my LDL particles are actually large and buoyant versus small and dense, that'll make me feel a little bit better. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. So enough about that. What about, did you have anything more to say about that with statins or anything? No, I don't. No. Okay. Perfect. I like it. So 
if anyone asking those questions would like any more information, if we didn't cover anything to your to the you know fullest extent that you would have liked, please let us know, and we can we can reevaluate our answers or come back and you know add more if you'd like, or if there's something else that we missed, please let us know. But let's go ahead and talk about some mom wins or favorite new products or recipes. Uh, what's what comes to mind is one day last week I made a homemade Caesar salad, and actually was not fantastic, I must say. <laughs> I'm not going to end up logging it, but Piper tore it up. The girl really? ate three bowls of salad. It was... So what was wrong with it? It just, it didn't have a whole lot of flavor, in my opinion. Okay. Um, but she disagreed. I mean, she just went to town on this nice. salad. It was, it, it was kale and romaine. Yeah, it was just awesome. And Yum. then I have to put in a... Wait, pl- was that from your cookbook? Because I think, don't you have a kale or something Caesar salad in your cookbook? I feel sounds, like you do. It sounds correct. Th- yeah, that one's way better. Um, yeah, this one wasn't. It was, yeah, I wouldn't make it, it. It had milk in the dressing. I would not call it a real authentic Caesar salad, but okay, it's it's not even worth talking about because it wasn't that good. Piper but was the Piper only one who thought it. so. Yeah, it's just fun <laughs> to sit there and watch your two-year-old plowing vegetables into her mouth. You know? Oh my gosh. It's, yes, it is. Just makes the dietitian heart, mom heart sing. Um, <laughs> and then the one other. So my friend Biz, I don't know if you know Biz. Um, I do. I do. Okay. I don't know her, but I know of her. Yes. So she's so funny. Um, she <laughs> blogs over at mybusykitchen.com. And mm-hmm. a lot, oh, it's been too long ago that she made this pizza dough recipe that uses, I mean, basics, but Greek yogurt is in there. And so Mm -hmm. I finally made it last week and it's so good. And I was smart enough to make a double batch and I finished it off last night with a pizza and oh my gosh, it's just the best. Nice. And you're going to put that in the show notes, right? Yes. Make sure you do because I saw your picture on Instagram yesterday and it looked delicious. Yeah, people loved that picture. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, it looked really, really cool. It looked very authentic and, you know, not from a box, which it wasn't. So I got to I got to have that recipe. So be sure to put that in our show notes. Done. Um, Okay, so what about you have? Let's see. Oh, I've been buying a ton of avocado lately because they're really cheap these days. And I consider cheap like a dollar or less. So avocado toast has been a big hit. It always is a hit, but it, I, I feel like we kind of stopped buying avocados for a while there because they were like $2 and I'm super cheap and that's just too expensive for me. So I have kind of brought avocado toast back to our dinner table and the kids absolutely love it. I even put it on a piece of daily needs bread, which is made with vegetables. I honestly think the bread is not that tasty, but both of my kids devoured it and I was kind of shocked. So I got the avocado and the sweet potato bread, even a leek spinach bread that they ate, which was crazy. Also, we made probably three dozen hard-boiled eggs. I made them on Friday of last week for them to dye half of them. And then the other half I was going to use this coming Sunday to make uh, uh, deviled eggs. And Nick, my husband, is very, very aware of food safety. And he was like, you're going to make those on Friday and serve them for, you know, Easter in a week. It would be, it would have been a week. It would have been 10 days. So I looked it up on Google. 10 days is about how good they're, they, how, how long they're good for. It's like, what's the big deal? And he just freaked out. He thought that was the worst idea. So 
I was like, fine, we'll just eat them throughout the week. And my kids have just loved them. So I've given them hard boiled eggs before, but you know, it kind of waxes and wanes as far as whether they like them, but they have been devouring these. Now, when I say they devour them, they typically don't eat the yolk, which of course is probably one of the healthiest parts, but I'm okay with that because they don't get a lot of protein in their diet and the whites have most of the protein anyway. So that's been a win. Also seasoned frozen vegetables, the bird's eye Asian medley specifically which I really love. Uh, they've been really digging that. And also frozen corn on the cob and frozen edamame. Two, two uh, things that we tried. We've had them in the past, but I kind of brought them back after a while and they absolutely love them both. So I've even been putting those edamame pods in Paige's lunch. So that's been fun. Yum. We had edamame yeah. tonight too. Did you? Love it. Now I want avocado toast. I know it's but so it's good. after 8 p.m. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, you can't eat. <laughs> Don't do it. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Had to do it. Had to do it. All right, people. So find us. Come and find us. Uh, yeah, like Gina said, if you want some follow up uh, regarding your question, if you have a question for us, shoot us an email, dietitiansdishpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, same goes for Facebook and Instagram, dietitiansdishpodcast. And we are currently working on moving everything over to a new home on the internet. And so hopefully by the next time you hear our pretty voices, we will be live and you will be able to listen to us online, look at us online, reach us online. Um, we'll have a fully integrated podcast with um, a website. So wish us Very luck because you know technology is not our thing, but we're, we're hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And be sure to leave us a review. It's very easy to do. I honestly remember the first time I left a review on iTunes and I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. It literally takes two seconds. You can be anonymous. Um, you don't even have to give us yes, your name. No name needed. And you can write something bad. I mean, we want honesty. Honestly, we really want to know what we can do better, what we're doing right. If you like us, if you don't, it's okay. We want honesty. Leave us a review. If it's a good one, we might read it on our next podcast. Um, so yeah, that would be very helpful for us. We'd really appreciate that next and in two weeks, I should say, we will be dishing about kids and adults in the kitchen with celiac disease. So we've got our own cookbook author, Nicole, who wrote a cookbook on, was it baked goods, uh, gluten-free baked goods? Not exclusively. It was just specific to almond flour. Um, almond but flour, that's right. Yeah, I got a whole okay. education on gluten-free baking because I myself am not gluten-free, but it was a very uh, rewarding project. And I look forward to talking just about celiac and how to keep your kitchen gluten-free when you need to. Yeah, and I work in food service and that's pretty much all I do is gluten-free training. Uh, so hopefully you can learn some things from us. Uh, yeah, until then, everyone have a great, well, everyone's going to have an Easter. By the time they listen to this, it'll be after Easter. But have a great spring. Enjoy your weekend, whatever day it is. And be well, everyone. See you in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.